Now, in the past, the cautionary rule was also applied where there was a complainant in a case relating to sexual misconduct, right? So, where there was this complainant in relation to uh, these uh, sexual cases, uh, sexual abuse, sexual misconduct cases such as rape, the court would automatically treat the uh, alleged victim, the complainant's uh, evidence with a level of caution and this evidence is I should be a little bit suspicious here, right? There's a little bit more careful in the way I go about evaluating this evidence. And of course, every uh, reason, every uh, principle in law is based on a particular reason. Like we mentioned, uh, children's evidence is treated with a level of caution because of the level of immaturity when it comes to children, right? And now in this instance, oral evidence in relation to uh, sexual misconduct, the, the complainant was treated with a level of caution because it also had a basis. And the basis was that when it comes to cases around sexual misconduct, it was easy to make up evidence, right? It was very easy for uh, what would traditionally be a woman, it was very easy for a victim to just concoct a story. And because of how easy it is to, to make up evidence and to fabricate evidence and to, to, to lie about being uh, raped, for instance, uh, of, uh, a, a complainant or alleged victim of rape, when assessing the evidence, the court had to be more cautious. Now you will see that in S versus Jackson, uh, which was in 1998, so four years into uh, our democracy, the Supreme Court of Appeal made the, the progressive uh, step of abolishing the cautionary rule, right? So even though we had the cautionary rule in South Africa, the cautionary rule no longer forms part of our law insofar as uh, victims of sexual misconduct and complainants regarding uh, sexual misconduct is, co is concerned. And in versus Jackson, in the process of giving its reasoning for why the court abolished the cautionary rule in relation to cases of sexual misconduct, the Supreme Court of Appeal explains that, that this reasoning around it's easy for someone to make up a lie about being raped, it's easy for someone to manipulate evidence in this regard and to fabricate evidence in this regard, that this basis is, is based on essentially a perception that is irrational, it's an illogical perception, it's an outdated perception, right? And on this basis, the Supreme Court of Appeal ultimately abolishes the cautionary rule in relation to sexual assault cases. So the, the legal position in our law now is that when it comes to uh, cases around sexual misconduct, the court is not going to apply a cautionary rule by mere fact that the particular a uh, complainant in that case is complaining about having been a victim of sexual misconduct. However, the court can treat the evidence when it comes to evidence that is given by the complainant in cases like this. The court can treat that evidence as a bit uh, more to be approached with a bit more uh, caution, with a with a level of of of, of a little bit more circumspection uh, if the if it is what we refer to as justifiable to do so. So the court can apply the cautionary rule in relation to a complainant of a sexual assault case where there is a justifiable basis for doing so. And an example that for that would be, for instance, if someone uh, alleges that they have been raped and the complainant alleges they have been raped and they give oral evidence in court and the judge must evaluate the level of um, 
weight to be attached, the value to be attached to that evidence of that complainant, the court can apply the cautionary rule if it can be shown that the particular complainant had uh, perhaps on two previous occasions uh, lied about being about being raped. So in that particular instance, there would be a justifiable basis for the court to be more suspicious and more careful when evaluating that particular complainant's uh, case, right? Her particular evidence that she's making, the case that she's making. Now, when it comes to oral evidence, we also have what we refer to as expert evidence, right? So expert evidence is a form of oral evidence because ultimately it is a witness that goes up to the stand to give verbal evidence, but the witness is an expert, right? And the witness is an expert because they, they possess certain special knowledge, they're particularly clued up, they have studied and they are um, well-versed, they are, are well-read in the particular area or field that the court requires um, guidance on and that evidence needs to be laid on, right? And an example, for instance, of this would be uh, if there was uh, uh, footprints that are, are found at a crime scene and they need to analyze the footprints to show that the footprints uh, are likely those of the accused, then in that instance, the uh, prosecutor would call an expert witness who is an expert in uh, making that type of analysis, right? Or if it's a case about a document having been forged, uh, a gentleman's will having been forged, and in that case, the uh, particular person who is claiming the forgery can bring a witness to the stand that is an expert in handwriting that can give testimony as to the fact that the, the, the document in question, the will in question, is in fact a forged document and not a legitimate will. So now the party who is ultimately calling the expert to the court, right, to, to the court to can give uh, evidence before the court to provide oral evidence, must lay the foundation for why it is, right? Must show why it is that that particular expert's opinion or that particular specialized knowledge they have uh, in that particular field, they must be able to show that they indeed do possess that specialized knowledge. So, for instance, if we're dealing with someone that is now a specialist in handwriting, the particular party might say, okay, um, can you tell us when you obtained your degree in um, whatever the case may be, forensic, whatever, whatever, right? In that instance, the person will say, okay, I obtained my degree in 2005. And then they can say, okay, how long has it been that you've worked as a, as a high handwriting specialist? And the person might say, uh, I have worked as a handwriting specialist for the last 10 years, and then they might ask, uh, have you provided testimony regarding handwriting uh, statements on previous occasions? And the person may say, yes, I have, and I've, whatever the case may be, I've done it on X amount of occasions, or I've often uh, provided evidence in this regard, right? So now the party who's calling the, the particular expert has shown why it is that this person must be regarded as an expert who has special knowledge in the field of handwriting. Now, one last thing to keep in mind when it comes to expert opinion is, although this particular person is an expert, although they might come to the stand and say, I've got 15 years experience in analyzing handwriting, it is of my opinion that the, the, the signature on the will has been forged, 
ultimately the court can't blindly accept that specialist's opinion or that expert's opinion and that expert's oral testimony because ultimately it is the presiding officer, it is the court's responsibility to make findings of fact and to make findings of law. So the ultimate uh, responsibility for establishing whether or not that signature is a forged signature lies with the court. But of course the court in the process of evaluating the evidence and reaching its factual Findings will uh, examine that expert's opinion, will be cognizant of the level of qualifications of that expert, and in the process of evaluating the opinion, the court, of course, will lend a certain amount of weight to the fact that it is an expert's opinion, but the court ultimately will have to make the final call when it comes to the, the uh, particular um, evidence that the expert is providing an opinion on, so that it will be the court who ultimately has to make the final call is this handwriting of forgery or is it legitimately the handwriting and the signature of the uh, person whose will uh, is in question?